This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. My guest today is Sean Powell. Sean is a friend of mine. He's also a Marine, a father, and one of my former students from back in my teaching days. Today he's on the podcast to discuss a poem that he recommended, which was If by Rudyard Kipling. We do a an informal explication, not unlike what we have done in the past on this show, and we discuss the details of Rudyard Kipling's fantastic poem and all of the things that we can learn from it. I certainly enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you do as well. Now I give you Sean Powell. My guest today is Sean Powell. Uh, Sean, thank you for joining me on the episode today. It's a pleasure to have you here. A pleasure to be here. Uh, Sean and I have known each other for a number of years. Sean and I are both Marines. Uh, in fact, those of you listening at home can't he- can't see him, but he is wearing a Marines t-shirt right now, which I would expect nothing less uh, from the fine, upstanding gentleman we have before you today. Brought Sean on today to uh, to discuss a little bit of poetry. You know that we do this from time to time on the episodes, and it seemed about due time to circle back to another one. So the way this episode originated is I put it out on social media and asked folks to make recommendations about what poem they would like to have on the podcast. And Sean responded that he wanted to talk about Rudyard Kipling's If. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, Sean, can you uh, introduce yourself to the to the listeners? Uh, I, sh- I sure can. Uh, my name is Sean Powell. I am, in fact, a Marine officer. Um, I first met Matt uh, back in ROTC, he was the instructor there. I was a student there. Uh, I can successfully blame him for all the good and bad habits that I've picked up since then. <laughs> uh, and since then, I've been in uh, a couple of duty stations, all of them in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And now I'm out at the University of Arizona, where Matt used to be as the instructor. Now I'm filling his same chair, hopefully not to know, lower the reputation of it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Thanks, Sean. It's, uh, yeah, Sean and I were, we first met I believe back in what 2013 or so um, at at the yeah. university, and as Sean mentioned, he was he was one of my students there while I was an instructor, and uh, it's been great, Sean, to to keep track of you as your career has grown and and you've uh, moved from the university and now are actually circling back. So it's uh, it's really a pleasure to have you here. It's very interesting how life uh, takes people, brings them together, diverges them, and then and then they come back together. Uh, we had a great opportunity recently while Sean was working out of Camp Lejeune. Uh, he came up to the Quantico area in support of the relief effort for the for the Afghan nationals that that came, uh, the refugees. He did a lot of great work there, and uh, Sean, it really is a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, again, thank you for for joining me. Absolutely, it, it, I'm not trying to just inflate your ego. It's an honor to be on there. Uh, ever since you started the Quotations podcast, I've always been following it. I mean, again, not just to inflate your ego, but you're the reason I have my quote journal, and like I have your quote as my first one in there. So. Again, I can blame all those things on you directly. Well, I uh, that is a blame I will I will gladly shoulder. Um, it's <laughs> it's something that obviously means a lot to me. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I really do believe that words have power, and there are a lot of amazing people that have gone before us and are and are even still currently alive that we can learn a lot from. So 
the opportunity to come on here and talk about a piece of meaningful poetry like Rudyard Kipling's If is, uh, is, is a real honor in and of itself. So why don't we jump right into the poem, shall we? Yeah. As I mentioned, today's poem is by Rudyard Kipling. I'm going to read the poem for everyone real quick at home and then talk a little bit about uh, Rudyard Kipling the man before, uh, before we get into kind of pulling the, the, uh, the poem apart line by line. So uh, here's the poem. Again, it's If by Rudyard Kipling. Quote, if you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about don't deal in lies, or being hated don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. End quote. So, Sean, this is a poem that, that you clearly see a lot of value in. This is a very, very popular poem. In fact, it's a portion of this poem is actually in the intro to this podcast. That's how important this is. It's probably one of the most well-known poems in all of poetic history. Um, it's right up there with, uh, with some of the other very well-known ones. Um, the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe jumps to mind. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Um, and Still I Rise by Maya Angelou and others, O Captain, My Captain, and, and others like that. And knowing all of that, knowing that this is as popular a poem, pretty much anybody that's ever read poetry has heard this poem or portions of it and would recognize it. What about this poem in the global sense speaks to you about um, the your life and, and what have you kind of taken from it on the whole? Hmm, that, that, that's a good question. I mean, it it sounds very cliche, but... Every time I hear it still, I get like that feeling inside me, like I can feel something powerful going on, even though I've, you know, seen it quoted in movies and books and on posters and like, you know, cheesy motivational posters and office buildings kind of thing. Like it's something about it is just like it, it doesn't make you sound, it doesn't make you want to be like this superhuman person to be a good, you know, in this case, a good man, a good mankind, man, a human being type, you know, end goal. But it's all very like obtainable things that I feel like, like, man, I feel like I could do that like tomorrow. Like if I'm presented with something and the way it speaks is like, it's not saying I have to go climb Mount Everest to be, you know, the, a man like I want to be. So that's like what initially drew it to me as a young man. And like the more I read it and the more I like listened to it, and the more I saw it on cheesy posters, I was like, that does resonate pretty deeply. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a beautiful sentiment. I really do. I think you're exactly right. I think the thing that jumps out at me is the ifs, right? Each of the ifs is almost like a list, right? It's an if you can keep your head, if you can trust yourself, if you can dream, right? If you can do all of those things and we're presented with opportunities to do those every day, 
it's a it's a great almost checklist. I mean, we've done lists on this podcast before where it's, hey, these are the things. These are Benjamin Franklin's 13 virtues, right? If you can if you have these yeah. 13 virtues, you're doing pretty well in life and you can strive mm-hmm. for them and work for them. And the nice thing about the things that Kipling puts in this poem is they happen to us every day, right? You think every day. You're faced with challenging situations every day. You have opportunities to dream and to to hear the things that you've said misattributed or misquoted or, or twisted. And your yeah. response to those things is a great opportunity to to really show who you are as a person, right? As a, In Kipling's case, he's talking about being a man. But I would argue that this poem applies to far more than just mankind, right? This is, as you said, humanity. Definitely, yeah. And I mean, as like a young teenage boy, I was like, I want to be a man someday. But the, like the older I get now that I have like a wife and a kid, it definitely applies to like my wife applies to every single one of those things. You know, like my, my aunts, my uncles, like you name it, human beings is like, all of those things happen to us every single day. Sure, absolutely. And and, and Kipling himself, I mean, the man, um, for those that don't know, and I've got a couple of little little facts about Kipling here, but Kipling was born in 1865 uh, in Mumbai, British India, because at the time India was still a British colony. So it was not Mumbai, India. It was Mumbai, British India at the time. He lived all the way to 1936, where he died in London, England at the age of 70. And that's a very interesting period of time to be alive because he was born right at the tail end of the American Civil War. Certainly not something infant Rudyard Kipling would have cared about, but he certainly saw the fallout from that. And he saw the way that that impacted America's standing in the world. He also lived through the turn of the century, which is always an exciting time. He saw the sinking of the Titanic. He saw World War I. He actually lost a son in World War I. Um, his son was killed fighting in World War I, which certainly colored his impressions of the world. And this poem came out about 10 years before his son was killed. But still, to lose a child, and he had already lost one. He lost one right before the turn of the century. So he actually lost two of his three children. Um, they, only one of them survived beyond the age of 18. And that was his, his daughter, uh, his middle child, actually, his daughter. And so the impact of those things, I mean, this is somebody who had experienced loss and experienced hardship and I'm certain that this poem grew out of some of the pain that he felt from having lost his daughter the first time. A lot of these ifs were probably things that he struggled with as a man. Um, maybe, Sean, can you talk about a time where this poem and the ifs that are contained in this, the list of things that um, this poem challenges you to do, can you, can you describe a time where if spoke to you and resonated and helped you through maybe a challenging time, either professionally or personally, um, that, that, that was meaningful to you? Yes. Uh, let me, I'm going to find the one that like, you know, really like hits the nerve on this one. Um, let's see. So I think it's, uh, let's see the, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men can count with you, but none too much that like those two phrases right there, I think as a, as a, I don't know, maybe high school kid, when I first heard this poem and, you know, I had like, high in the sky ideas of what I'm going to be when I grow up and it's going to be amazing. And I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to be this great Marine officer because I had got, just got the scholarship and all that jazz. Like those two things were very like, the impactful because they stood out of like of all these things, you know, with all these good things happening right now, like my young high school life. If you can say true to yourself that like friends can criticize you or, you know, or foes, people that don't like you can criticize you, like, or hurt you physically, even or emotionally. And like if all men, you know, all your friends or your classmates, or whatever, they can count on you and they can count with you, but none of them are like overly dedicated to you. 
I think you've struck that like moderation in all things mentality. Like you're, you're not a fanatic in something. You're not, you know, you're not undesirable in all these categories, but you're just enough. Like people can count with you, but none of them are overly dedicated to you as a young kid that that stood out. Sure. Yeah. And and you speak to something that we all experience, which is the challenges of interpersonal interactions. I mean, there are going to be people yeah. that love and adore you and there you can do no wrong in their eyes. Um, and then there are going to be those that are the complete opposite. They're the ones that no matter what you do, they that for some reason, uh, real or imagined, they find it in themselves necessary to to attack and to tear down and to balance those two equally. I think that's the hard part. It's easy sometimes. Uh, or at least we say it's easy to discard the foes, right? To say, ah, that person, that person is easily discarded. They're not important. Their words can yep. still hurt, but it's easier to discard that. But the the key, I think, to what you're talking about is the balance between the two, right? The the idea that you take both the good and the bad in equal measure and give them equal weight in the way you view the world. I think that's that's the true test there. It's you're going to have both. You're going to have the good and the bad and to weight them both equal, equally and not allow either one to disproportionately affect you is 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 no small feat. That takes practice. Yeah. And I mean it's it's it's, it's fairly obvious in the poem like there's a lot of like if this then this and like like a very polar triumph and disaster kind of mentality, but it, it is one of those things like it sounds so easy to say and it's so easy just to be like, yeah, if I just meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, like, yeah, no big deal. But actually doing that when you're faced with like either some amazing thing that happened in your life, like yeah, I guess recently like the birth of my son, triumph, right? He's healthy. He's a great kid. But I have to, like, according to the poem, I have to treat triumph and disaster just the same. I can't mm -hmm. rest on my laurels. I have to like find that middle ground to stay true to myself. Yeah, I mean, and that that's that's difficult. And you the, the the line that you're referring to is if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. What's interesting about this is, and Kipling wrote it this way. You can go back and look at the way he wrote it. Occasionally, authors will put emphasis on certain things, and we've seen this in other poems as well. But if you notice, triumph and disaster are both capitalized, and they're yeah. not at the start of the sentence, right? Mm -hmm. And normally. Initial capitals like that beget a, a formality, right? There's a, I would right. write Sean with a capital S and Matt with a capital S. It means something. It is a title. Yeah. So giving triumph and disaster, capital letters there, was deliberate. I mean, he was the poet. He could have, he, he had as many revisions and redos and retries on this as he wanted. This was not a mistake. So mm -hmm. why capitalize both of those things then? Recently, I thought a lot more about that. Like, in the, the the more I read this poem later in my life, like seeing the capital T and the capital D, um, th the way it strikes me is like I don't think I really know what triumph or disaster means right now. Like, I might think I do, uh, but like, do I really know what a capital T triumph is or a capital D disaster is? Like, I don't really know. So, I mean, if I'm met with something that I think falls into those categories, I use that as like I attempt to treat those two imposters just the same, but it has a little bit of mystique for me because like a lowercase T triumph or a lowercase D disaster, like in my head, I could be like, yeah, I crashed my car or, you know, something like that is a disaster. Right. But is that really a disaster according to capital D disaster? Like, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. It, that's always a struggle, right? I mean, there, there are plenty of things. There's plenty of things going on in the world around us, right? I mean, the, the, the conflict in Yemen, the war in Ukraine, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on where when you compare the quote triumph and disasters that we might put a capital letter on, in the grand scheme of the world, in the grand scheme of, <laughs> of humanity's trajectory as a whole, they're probably little t, little d, 
um, right, not the other right. way. And, and balancing that is hard. And that's, that's the challenge. I mean, it, that, those two lines alone could occupy your time for months and months, years, your entire life, trying to balance triumph and disaster and treat, the, treat those two imposters just the same. Um, yeah. Another line that kind of jumps out to me is, I mean, the very first one, the very first line in the poem where Kipling says, mm-hmm. if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. What's interesting about that is unlike almost the entirety of the rest of the poem, those two lines don't rhyme. Right. I mean, they both end with you. They're not yeah, they're not yeah. rhyming. It's not a couplet like the rest of the poem is. And it's right. the line that if you're going to remember any line in the poem, that's a pretty good one. But in researching for this episode, one of the things that I found is that that line isn't always taken very seriously. There's there's a school of thought that says if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, you don't understand the situation. So. The question for you, I guess, then is, and for all of us, I suppose, listeners and myself alike, is if if you're the only level-headed person in the room, how do you know that you're level-headed because you have the best grasp of the situation and not that you just don't have a clue what's going on around you? Oh, that, I mean, that's like the essence of leadership, right? <laughs> uh, there, there are many times that you, you think you're the smartest guy in the room, like, why doesn't the boss just see it this way? But uh, I don't know. I, I've had plenty of times in, you know, just my, my short Marine Corps career where I've assumed that I'm like, I can keep my head and people are just losing their minds about this. I don't get it. And I'd say like 50% of the time I walk out and I'm like, oh, geez, I missed it. Like, that's why they were losing their heads because it was important. Um, and the, the blaming it on you part, that's uh, that's interesting because like what doing my own research seeing that these these two lines like the, the the beginning lines don't rhyme they stand out to me as well the like when you can keep your head when all about you're losing theirs that i'm like got it like been there done that i've tried to keep a level head people losing their minds around me whether it's in the field in the workplace whatever it is right but the end blaming it on you that's where it's like that i don't know if, if you know your your team your unit the boss whatever is like is blaming you for whatever the situation is I mean, it, it like resonates me right off the bat. Yeah. Don't have, I don't have a very good answer for it, I guess, but it, it resonates. <laughs> no, and, and, and I don't either. And I mean, and that's the that's the beauty of a poem like this. That's how a poem is. You know, this poem is more than 100 years old. You know, it's approaching 100 and 115 years old. And it's yep. still to this day, it's taught in every <laughs> poetry class, every English class. We're talking <clears throat> about it on a podcast. Clearly, it speaks to people. And it's probably right. because some of these are not easy answers. Yeah, it's it's just, and it seems like it's like it's novel every time. Like every time there's a discussion of it, it's like this new found discovered thing. It's been around for a while and it's still confusing and still intriguing. <laughs> and it still drives you. It can still motivate you. It can still take you to another level, right? When you return to this poem, and I haven't I hadn't looked at this poem in some time when you brought it up. I mean, probably the last time I looked at the words of this poem was when I was putting together the intro for this podcast and trying to decide mm-hmm. which two lines or which line from this poem do I want to include? Because I knew I wanted something from if, because it's that familiar to people. And the other lines and, you know, the the intro are, are familiar to people as well. But I think that was probably the last time I looked at it. But returning to it and diving into this, part of the value in it for me is re-examining these words and reminding myself, ah, okay, maybe I have these lines figured out pretty well, but I forgot about these ones. These ones still mean mm-hmm. something. These ones still matter. And there's still something that I can strive to be better um, by reading. I have a uh, again cheesy poster of this poem of this poem like up on my wall, and since I recently moved, it's it's not there anymore. And like 
almost every day when I'm working at home on personal stuff or work stuff, it's like I see and I'll maybe pick out a word or like a, a stanza or something and just reread it and be like, uh, yep, still don't know exactly what it means, but it just like lights that fire inside me. I don't know what it is. No, and, and, and that's the beauty of these words, right, is that the, the ability to rekindle something, to let you know that you're not there yet, to, that they're still climbing mm-hmm. to be done. And so uh, switching gears and looking at a little bit different line, the last line of the first stanza where he talks about, and yet not, too, and don't look too good nor talk too wise. So being a Marine Corps officer, the two of us both have experienced the situations where the the cliche of an officer is that they're always well-dressed and they always speak intelligently yeah. and they've got college degrees and all of this stuff. And obviously the challenge yeah. in any leadership position is to be able to connect with the people that you're leading. Um, because without right. that connection, it's just, it's just demands and compliance. So yep. Yep. can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the not talking too wise piece? Cause clearly you're, you're an eloquent individual, you're intelligent, you've achieved a lot in your life. How do you balance knowing that you are educated, intelligent, capable, while also mm. not looking too good and not talking too wise? I, I think actually the Marine Corps makes it very easy for that because we have like our own language that we speak. We speak in like 80% acronyms sometimes. And, you know, I, I, if, I, if I say, I don't know, things like pick him deep or make PP or mag traffic, all those things, right? Like I, I, my, my junior Marines know what that means, but... So I think that like common language helps when you like no nor talk to you wise. Like I'm I'm not using a, a made up language for Marine Corps stuff. It's all very you know all of us speak the same language. Um, but there there are definitely times you have to understand that. You know, as I mean, heck, I've met like wicked wicked smart Marines that are enlisted. That the stereotype is the exact opposite, right? That they're haven't been to college, barely graduated high school, or you know, rock eating, crane eating Marines is like the, there's the the stereotype, but they are like insanely smart and it's, I don't know. I think, I think part of it is like, nor talk too wise. I emphasize like the two wise, like the TOO, because if you just talk the way you normally talk mm-hmm. and in any given organization, I feel like if you just are the way you are as a person and you know, you use the appropriate language of like whatever organization you're part of, you're not going to come off as some like highfalutin guy who's trying to like impress them with my college degree or they're like, I'm an officer and I went to college. It's, you know, like they, they, they know that, you know that you don't have to emphasize it. And as long as you're speaking to them as a human, I mean, that PFC might be 26 years old and been to college. Like you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That line to me and the way you just described it, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of it as many times as I've read this. I'm learning as we go here. But that last line, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. I mean, that is a another way of saying be humble, right? Be yeah, Have humility. Yeah. Um, recognize that you're fallible. Right. And it doesn't say like, don't look good or don't talk wise. Like it says you can look good. You can talk wise. Just don't be like arrogant about it. <laughs> mm. Yep. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great assessment. I, I appreciate that. Cause that's now probably how I will read that line. It'll just read as, and be humble. Right. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's a very well, it's, it's, it's a poetic way, no pun intended to, to say something <laughs> that otherwise would probably just be discarded as, yeah, we got it, Rudyard. Like I got it. Be humble. Right. But when he says, yeah. don't look too good or talk too wise, you're right. And he's making allowance for you to look good and be wise, but not too much. Right. I, I think that the way you said that is exactly how I took it, too. Like, it's a, a lot of these things. If you just said, like, be humble, don't be arrogant. OK, got it. Thank you for the checklist item. You know, like, you know, 
going back to the triumph and disaster thing, like have a level head in all situations. Like, okay, got it. That's a very like not impactful statement, but the way he offers up the, like a very, I don't know. I, I take as a very non like unique thought of like, don't look too good or talk too wise, but he, he, the way he like expresses it so succinctly and just not in, not in common phrase language is like, it makes it just that much more like intriguing and, like I, I want to know what he's talking about instead of just like, hey, be humble. Thank you, Mr. Kipling. Don't 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 be a, a jerk. Right. No, and and you actually make a really good point, right? I think, and it's something that we've probably danced around here on the podcast with a number of the words. I've I've alluded to the fact before that sometimes very simple thoughts, very com- commonly understood stances or ideas, are often when put forth by the right speaker or the right writer. In this case, Kipling cause you to take a moment and pause and think. And I think that's what he's doing a lot here. You could probably sum up all the lines of this poem. There are eight lines per stanza, so 32 lines. You could probably sum up these 32 lines in 16 words, if you just did single words for each couplet. (laughs) But it wouldn't carry the same weight, right? You wouldn't spend the same amount of time chewing on this. You wouldn't print it on a poster and hang it up in your house. And we wouldn't talk about it on this podcast if it was just 16 words, right? It Sometimes it takes a poet to extract from, you know, six letters, humble, right? And, and turn that into, what does that mean? What is the physical manifestation of humility? And he breaks it down in, in this way. And that's an interesting thought. And that's, um, that's something that poets especially are extremely good at doing. And so I, I don't want to get ahead of uh, whatever schedule you have like, for the poem, if we're just kind of danced around, but that, that part of, you know, summarizing be humble in that, you know, very poetic sense. I think is like in direct opposition to the last line of or the last two lines of the third stanza, because that for me, every time I read it is like crescendo. My heart is like fluttering because I'm like, this is the movement, you know, the moment in the movie where the hero is fighting the bad guy. And like, you know, the, the, the phrase where it says, and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will capital W except the will, which says to them, hold on exclamation point. Yeah, how it, it like it, it builds from hey, just be be humble. Don't don't be a jerk about it. They know you're smart. To like, only the will is letting you hold on to whatever you're holding on to. Like that's just uh, motivating. <laughs> yeah, I mean if that doesn't if that doesn't drive you to take the next step during a difficult hike or you know do the next rep during a different difficult workout or stay awake that extra ten minutes when you're already exhausted. I mean if that doesn't if that doesn't drive you, I, I, I don't know what does. I mean, that's that's a fantastic line. And again, you 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 caught it, the, the capitalization of the word will. Again, he, deliberate, right? Deliberately saying mm. will is will is important enough that of all the words in this poem, I'm going to take and I'm going to capitalize that because that is, a, that is a thing. That is a tangible, important, draw your attention, make you wonder why did I capitalize that kind of word in this poem? Yep, and so the uh, one of those quote tie-ins that I don't have the exact quote before me, but and stealing from your class way back in the day, the uh, the well of fortitude idea. Whenever I read that line, I think about the well of fortitude, and like as not trying to turn it into a leadership discussion, but like as leaders having to have that deep well, so that way when you are in a situation where nothing except the will to set, you know tells you to hold on, you have something to draw from, so that people around you can continue to hold on because you're able to hold on because your well of fortitude is just a little bit deeper or just deep enough. But like whenever I read that line and if like those two images are like instantly associated. That's, that's something that 
I go to, right? Because we're, we're always going to be around people who need a little something, right? And one of the roles of a leader or one of the roles, I would argue, without even knowing that you are a leader in a moment, mm. if you have that little bit of something extra to offer to somebody else who doesn't have anything left, in that moment, you are a leader. And that works up, down, and sideways. There is no, yeah. there's no, there's no hierarchical relationship there. It could be as simple as seeing somebody leaving a grocery store and dropping something on the ground, and that person you can just tell in their eyes, you can see it in their body language that they've. That's it. That's the last thing of the day. When it when it rains, it pours. Kind of situation. Hundred percent. And for you to be there and be that person who can offer them a kind word, a smile, an assist in picking up whatever it is that they dropped in that moment, you are a leader. In that moment. Your well of fortitude is a little bit deeper and you can offer something to somebody else. I mean, that's that's a magical human interaction. That is a that is a solely human interaction. And it's and it can be powerful. You can change somebody's entire the course of somebody's entire life in a situation like that. Yep. Yep. Definitely agree. And it's like it's like a, a cycle in my head. I think about the well of fortitude. I think about this quote. I think about the well of fortitude, like, yeah, the will and the well and it just it fits so perfectly because when you're walking out of the grocery store and you see the lady or the guy or whatever, the mom with three kids drop something like you may not want to pick it up either because you're busy and you're tired or whatever. But the will that says, like, hold on to those values that you hold dear, like makes you go pick up the thing and help the person. Certainly. You know, and speaking of, you know, the the idea of of that well and and being able to hold on just a little bit longer, there's another line. Um that where he talks about watching the things that you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. And mm -hmm. that speaks to that will, right? It'll, it, it, it fits nicely. It meshes nicely with that idea of a will that says, hold on. And it also speaks to what you mentioned before, like the things that we've given our life to. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything that I've quote given my life to that I've seen broken, right? I think that's a fairly rare occurrence, um, or at least I hope yeah. it is for the sake of humanity, that that doesn't happen to a lot of people a lot of the time. But the thing that jumps out at me from those two lines is the line about worn out tools, because I ask myself, mm. well, why worn out tools, right? Mm. It's not just a rhyming thing. It's not just to make sure that there's enough syllables in that line. Why worn out tools? Worn out tools because they're used. They've been used before. I mean, how does any tool get worn out? It gets worn out from use. And so the idea that you're using tools to build something up that's been broken speaks to the fact that maybe other things have been broken. Maybe there's maybe there's more there to that that has been fixed in the past and you're using those same tools again. So kind of speaking to your well of fortitude or to some of the maybe the tools that you've developed as a leader what do you think are the worn out tools that that you have maybe as an example or maybe somebody you know it doesn't have to be you but maybe some of the worn out tools used to fix broken things i mean we have the, the classic example of the leader like you know put that tool in your toolbox kind of thing and like as i heard that as a you know freshman midshipman in your class to literally PCSing from Camp Lejeune. I've heard that phrase the entire time, like in movies and books, all that kind of stuff. And seeing it in If, a poem that like predates all of those people living that have said those phrases, like it, it obviously is, it's a good, it's a good analogy for the things that get us through life. And like, I don't know, the, the way that I interpret like the, the tools that are, you know, right now being worn out in my life, doing whatever I'm doing, whether it's school or PT or, you know, whatever I'm doing. I, I think a lot of it is like 
those those things that you often rely on, whether it's you know your your family, your faith, your your you know your your steady income, whatever thing that you're like relying on to allow you to continue forward. I think those are like my tools that I'm living on, and not just those three things in particular that are particular to me, but just in general, right? Like the guy that is 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 really really smart at at math or something. He's relying on that that tool of being good at math to get him through school, to get him through college, or get him you know keep his job or whatever. And like those tools are slowly getting worn out just from day-to-day use from you getting older and more tired or whatever it is and just like you said about i don't think i've or you you said you didn't think you've seen a uh something that you've given your life you've wholly broken yeah i've I've not experienced that either i think i can say with almost certainty that i've never seen something that i've given my life to which i'm not even sure i've done that yet broken and like have to stoop and build them up but that those two lines really actually I don't know if scared is the right word because we're never scared, but like they 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 make me a little bit concerned because throughout history, I've, you know, studying history, you see entire civilizations wiped out, and somebody there at some point was like, "I'm gonna keep this thing going." You know, I'm gonna I'm either gonna save the stone tablet so people know that we existed, or I'm going to literally build the temple over again because that's just you know that's my life. Sure. And so yeah. Like seeing those examples of people literally having to build up palaces and temples and buildings and roads with worn out tools that, you know, they, that like inspires me that like, even if it does happen to me or when it happens to me, it's, you know, it's relatively minor in comparison to having your entire city raised by the Persians or something like that. Sure. And, and maybe that's the tool, right? Maybe the tool is recognizing that whatever it is that you think is broken or whatever it is that you think you've lost is pales in comparison to the brokenness and loss of others. And maybe that's the tool. Maybe it's the that the tool that you're wearing out or the tool that you're using is the tool of recognition, the tool of empathet of empathy. Um the ability to recognize that your difficulty is not as great as someone else's. And therefore, if that person was able to overcome that brokenness and that loss, then so too should you be able to do the same. Because if they could do it, you can do it. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it speaks to something that I remember from my college days, which was uh, before we went out on our very first summer cruise, we went out on ship for the summer and we were departing from Maine where I went to school and we were getting on a ship and we were heading south to towards the equator. And I remember a professor saying to one of my classes that I was in at the time, I hope you all get into the worst storm of your life as soon as you leave port. And we all, of course, looked at him with that quizzical look of, of why would you say that? Why would you wish that on us? And his answer was because once you've been through that, anything less than that will be a breeze. And it's the same concept, right? It's the recognition that there's always something worse. There's always something out there that's more terrible than whatever it is that you're going through. Sure, you lost your job. Somebody else lost their child yesterday. Sure, you lost your child. Somebody lost their entire family yesterday. And the idea that there's always something that could be worse than whatever it is that you're experience now, experiencing now may very well be the tool that allows you to get through some of those broken and times filled with loss. I, I think you said that much better than me, but yes, yes, I <laughs> absolutely agree with that. <laughs> so what other lines in the poem speak to you? I'm curious what else jumps out at you. I mean, I have the things that I've highlighted that speak to me, but I'm curious, you know, what is what jumps out at Sean Powell from the poem? So. Uh... 
and again, not trying to throw off the rhythm of the thing, but jumping to the last line of the poem, um, just because my son was just recently born, that line stands out. Um, the, the last two lines specifically where it says, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son, with an exclamation point. The, the, the more I read those two lines, the more I realize that it's not talking, I mean, it's, it's clearly not talking about if you do all these things, you'll have a kingdom and you'll, the earth will be yours to conquer and you'll be rich and you'll be happy and whatever. It's, it's like, even if you do all that, like the earth could be yours and everything that's in it, but like there's a more important thing to that and you'll be a man, which not trying to make it sexist, but because I have a son who might one day be a man, uh, it's, it's very interesting to me that like all of those things that I, as a young man, like held on to and motivated me, like now it's like my job to confer those things to that new little wiggly kid in my arms that like you got to meet triumph and disaster at some point man like maybe you think that you give your life to is gonna get broken and you gotta stoop and build them up with worn out tools (laughs) yeah so you're you're a recent father and you know you've had some experiences as a father and you'll certainly continue to have more i i know there are a number of listeners out there who are maybe more recent fathers than you or maybe will be fathers soon so what would you say to them with regards to to that that line how do you instill that in a child i mean i know your son is still very young but as you look towards the trajectory of the next you know 17 18 years of his life and imagine paving a path for him that ends one day with him becoming a man whenever that is how do you do that what do you what would you what do you say to the newly expectant father who's listening to this going that line speaks to me and i want to do that for my son but i don't know how oh that's a uh, that's a bold task <laughs> Um, so I think that, I don't know, in, uh, let's see, they're trying to use the right word here because I want to be specific with what word I'm trying to pick. Um, imitation is the best form of flattery type mindset where w- what's gotten me to be where I am today is really just imitating the people that I think hold these values, like not trying to inflate your ego, but you, um, like various other leaders that I've had in the Marine Corps, whether it's you know, that sergeant that worked for me that I was like, damn, she is a phenomenal sergeant that I want to be like one day because she's just, you know, so motivated and so dedicated to, you know, the highest ranking individual that I ever worked for was just the most wise individual possible, right? Knew the answer to everything. And then the non-military people that are probably more impactful that, I mean, my, my, my son is named after Theodore Roosevelt, not by accident, but he's a, a huge source of inspiration of, you know, born feeble and then became this like epitome of action and vigor and, you know, I don't know, holding on to what you hold true as a, as a person, as a politician, as a president, you know, like he's very outspoken his entire life of like, I have these principles and I'm going to live them actively. And if you can't, you know, get along with that, well, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. And I think that those are certain character, like those are some characteristics that I intend to, to model for my son. Cause if I, I mean, I can show him the poem and I can read him the books and I can say, hey, this is a really good poem. You should do this. But I think it really is like being genuinely dedicated to those things that you want your kid, you know, to, to be when he grows up. Because you can fake it till you make it all day long, but you can't fake it for like 18 years. You know, it's, it's that, that's, a, that, that's a hard game that I've had to have come to conversation with myself of like, you know, these things that you have been reading and if for years and years and years, like, well, now it's kind of game time. And if you're not, you know, willing to stoop and build things up with worn out tools, for example, then like Theodore probably isn't going to either. 
So if I was to summarize what you just said, and by all means, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's you have to be right in order to model right so that what you're modeling for becomes right. I mean, that's what yeah. that sounded like to me. It sounds like if you want to if you want to grow a man, be a man. If you want to if you want somebody to have certain characteristics, if you want them to be able to keep their head when all about them are losing theirs, if you want them to stoop and build up broken things with worn out tools, you have to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. You have to show them how to build things that are broken with worn out tools and being able to do that as a as a man, as a father, or to change the paradigm a little bit, to do that as a mother to a daughter or a mother to a son or father to a daughter, whatever the whatever the the mix is there. In order yeah. to do that, it starts with you, not just the words to somebody else. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, this is you comparing it to like any, you know, parental to child relationship is completely appropriate because it, it's, you know, the, the like you just said, it starts with you is extremely impactful for me with this whole poem because one of the other lines that I, I key in on whether I'm working out or not, it's the, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, I mean, it sounds so easy, <laughs> but, but to like apply that to your life, like every time you have this, um, a, a single minute of a difficult task, or in this case running, and you can fill it with like a, a, a just 60 seconds. That's all it is. Just 60 seconds worth of distance run. It sounds so easy, but like when you're actually in the moment having to, you know, get up at three o'clock to change the dirty diaper or whatever it may be like that in the moment, it's so much more difficult than the poem makes it sound, which is like the beauty of it. Cause it's like, it's, it's, it's you dedicating yourself for somebody else's well-being. That is a fantastic line. And again, it's the one that I chose to add to the to the intro and it, you're right because the word that jumps out to me from that is the word unforgiving right the unforgiving minute that minute will tick by those 60 seconds will elapse at the end of those 60 seconds because i do the same thing that you're talking about and i have 60 seconds left in something and it, i'll stop at 55 i'll stop at 58 mm -hmm. i'll stop yeah. at 59 that yeah. extra second or two or five or 30 or however much is going to tick by and mm -hmm. what, where you find yourself at the end of that minute is determined by what you do when you're within that minute. And that matters. And that matters. And you can't fake that. As you said, you can't, you can't fake it till you make it for 18 years of pretending to run for 60 seconds when you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, one of those things that I, I, it's very, very thankful for like the Marine Corps, and the military mindset of like, yeah, you, you got to run for 60 seconds, right? Because that's what the rules say. But when you're not wearing camis or when you're not in the field or something like that, it's it's so incredibly easy to just like, yeah, I mean, my workout plan said 12 reps, but I'll, I'll do like 11 because I'm pretty tired. And like, it's just you. It's just you in the gym. No one else is there. I mean, headphones in, you're just your own little world. But someone's going to like someone's going to get impacted by you not doing 12 reps, whether it's you, your family, your wife, the you know, the lady in the parking lot who drops the milk with three kids on her arm, like you may not go and pick up that grocery item because you're just like, you know, that's, that's the 12th rep. It's not my problem. It's not my right. problem. I didn't drop yeah. it. She'll deal with it. And I mean, so I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Any other lines that you wanted to talk about or want to move on? Um, no, no, I think you, you hit like all the ones that I wrote down before. So, 
I mean, and the poem is great. And I, you know, to the listeners out there, I would encourage you if you haven't actually put your eyes on this poem, you may don't go listen to it on on as a YouTube recording. Go and read the poem again, and take a moment and spend some time on each of the words because it's that powerful. It's that powerful. A a set of lines again. It is it is thirty two lines, and. It's enough to challenge any of us. If you never read another thing in your life, it's enough to keep you occupied till the very end of it. Um, but Sean, I, I do want to put you on the on the spot a little bit here. You had mentioned that you have your quote book with you. I do. Um, and I know you didn't come prepared with anything else, but <laughs> can I ask you to flip to a page, pick something that jumps out at you? Because I'm curious to know, and I'm sure the mm-hmm. listeners are as well. They've heard about my quote book for since the beginning of time, what jumps out at you from the pages that you think would be valuable to to the listeners to hear? We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm curious. Let me uh, let me find let me find one that that's not just a random a random thing. Let's see. And it's worth noting here, listener, that the the reason that that Sean has to dig as much is because I know, much like me, he fills the pages of that book. Um, it's it's very hard when you're put on the spot to go and find exactly what you're looking for. Ah, okay, so I, I did this on purpose, uh, but I have a quote from you actually. Uh-oh. Uh oh. And I'll, I'll find one that's better later, but this one just happened <laughs> to stick out because you're, you know, in, right in front of me. Um, but at some point in the, you know, ROTC days, you said, I assume at the end of a hard PT or something, right? I don't know what it was, but the quote was, "quote, bear the burden with a smile." End quote. And like that is stuck with me to this very day because. If there's anything that people out there who may or may not know me, um, I've probably laughed a few times in the microphone by accident on the podcast already, but I smile all the time. Even like in the field when it's raining, I just, I have that thing about me that if like things are really, really crappy, I'll usually crack a joke about it. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying you started that, but you definitely like fostered that mentality of the burden's going to be there. And if you just smile, it's either going to make it better for somebody else or at least make you get through it. So that's one that is a small, easy quote that sticks with me all the time. Sure. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that. And if you're going to flip and, and, and look for anything else, uh, you know, now, now's your moment. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to talk at the microphone for a moment, but it's, it's interesting that you say that because we talked a little bit about leadership and obviously being Marine officers, we hold leadership near and dear to our heart, probably more than almost anything. And the challenge a lot of times in a leadership situation, and I know you found yourself in them because I know that I have, and listeners, whatever your profession is, be it be it arm, combat arms or, or not, um, it, there are going to be moments where there's going to be a burden. There's going to be something. It's going to be the end of the day. You're going to want to go home. It's going to be the end of a long night, and you're going to want to go to sleep, and there's going to be a burden. There's going to be something that falls on you, something that you're presented with, and your only option in that you you only have two options in that situation and that is to give into that burden or to embrace it and the ability to to smile is useful in two ways it causes you the individual to take a moment and realize that there's still some levity to be had life is never that serious life and death regardless of what it is you're doing there's still a moment there where you can break and you can breathe for a quick second And the other is to the people around you who are inevitably also feeling that same burden. Their days are also long. They are also tired. They also want to go home and go to sleep. And in that moment, to turn and see someone, anyone, whether you're in an actual position of leadership or not, take a moment and smile can make all the difference in the world. 
you can build that person up. That's that's digging into the well that Sean was talking about. That's that's reaching down and giving a little bit more in that moment because it's easy to complain. It's easy to be hurt. It's easy to be tired. It's easy to show it. It's difficult in moments of burden and moments of trial to smile. So, Sean, I think that's a that's a great quote. And it's not I'm not saying that because it's mine. I'm sure I heard that from someone else. <laughs> Most everything that I say at some point was probably derived from someone uh, on whose shoulders I stand, but I, I appreciate that quote. That's a good one. Do you have another? Uh, so th- I just had me flipping through it, and one of my one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Uh, for all of the right reasons, and because there's some really good quotes in there too. Um, and this one stood out because of the whole "if" poem and living the life that you want to live as a man. And from Braveheart. William Wallace says, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And that's, you know, I think that's one of those that it's it's short. It's not particularly profound by itself. But when you sit down and think about like, it's, what does it mean to really live? And to me, I, I think of that quote from Braveheart. And I think of this, this poem, this poem, like damn near hits everything that I can think of as like, man, I, sh- I need to, you know, pay attention to that part of my life. And if pretty much hits them all. Yeah. No, I I love that. And you're right. Braveheart is a it is a, a plethora of wonderful quotes. So good. Good on you for pulling a pulling one out of there. Um, OK, Sean, what do you think about uh, some lightning round questions, some rapid fire uh, seat of your pants kind of kind of questions? I'm all about it. I will I'll do my best not to disappoint. OK, no, no, no disappointment here. These are just uh, these are just your thoughts or uh, or feelings on a topic. So this one's easy. Uh, what book are you currently reading or have most recently read? I am, I guess, two at the same time because I hate myself and like to haze myself sometimes. But uh, one is the second series in Edmund Morris's Theodore Roosevelt trilogy about his uh, his time from when he became a president. And then I don't remember exactly when it ends. I think it's the end of his presidential term when he finally is out of office. But I'm like not that far through that one. Uh, the one that I'm actively reading right now because the Edmund Morris one is, is a it's a slog fest sometimes. Um it's called South by uh Ernest Shackleton. And I I picked that book because I read Endurance by Alfred Lansing about the endurance uh get stranded in the South Pole, the struggles of those crew members that tried to serve them that survived on their own in the Arctic. And I had no idea that Ernest Shackleton had read had written his own journal, obviously before the first book came out. Um, and that book is just the struggle of those individuals in that environment is that whole, you know, watch the thing you gave your life to and stoop them up and build them up with worn out tools. Like those guys had nothing and it's, you know, pre-internet, pre-digital anything. And they're surviving in the Arctic by themselves, just by like their, their sheer willpower. So I mean, that, that could be actually a good time, but it's a phenomenal book of like struggle and overcoming all the odds and, you know, not everybody makes it, but it's it's a phenomenal story. No, that's great. And and don't worry, listener, I'm not expecting you to Google these on the fly. In fact, don't you dare pause this podcast to go look those <laughs> things up. I will put the links to those books in the show notes so that you can go and find them for yourself. But Sean, those are both great, great recommendations. And um and, and listener, in case you haven't caught on, I'm, I'm beginning to uh, surmise here that Sean has a a certain affinity for one Theodore Roosevelt. So um, if you haven't picked up on that yet, uh, maybe go back and start listening to the episode again. Great, great answer, Sean. All right, number two. If you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead, who would it be? 
That, that's a good question. And I will not say Theodore Roosevelt because I would like to read his biography before I sat down and embarrassed myself with him. I would I would exclude that. I would say that the only answer you cannot give in this case is Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I would probably pick like Themistocles or some ancient Greek just because that that time period's always fascinated with me or fascinated me like since I was a kid. Um and it would be really cool just to like hear what it actually was like. I mean we have all these texts and movies and comic books and statues and like we think we know what it was like but i would like to know like really what was it like that would be interesting yeah that's that's a very interesting answer i've not i've not heard someone give that answer before and and you mentioned we have a lot of texts we also don't have a lot of texts about a lot of periods of time from a lot of people i mean there are entire people who we know were great because they were spoken about by others but we have nothing from that individual or very little from that individual that would lead us to believe that they were as great as others have spoken about them. And so, yeah, that, that'd be very fascinating to, to see. I mean, like, like Herodotus is a great example of like, we, everyone thinks Herodotus is like the eminent historian, but like, it's, it's one guy and like one book of his that we have that we is, is, you know, the landmark text, but one of 50, a hundred, I know who knows. Sure. All right. So in a similar vein, um, if you could be present at any event in history, and I've, I've had this conversation where you're visible and interacting or you're invisible and just observing, however you want to frame it, if you could be present at any event in history, what would it be? Ooh, that's another great question. Um, I would probably say, man, it's going to sound so cheesy, but the, the flag raising on Suribachi. Because... I mean, it's it's some of the like very, I mean, the most iconic photo of American history, right? And it gets and sounds very like rah rah Marine Corps to say that, but that would be a very interesting thing to see that. And if I could be there like 24 hours in advance, that'd be awesome just to see like you know how those individuals got to that position and like mm-hmm. made that moment that still stands in American history today. Like anyone could probably point out that picture and maybe not know where it's from, but like know that it's an important picture. That would be that'd be pretty interesting to be a part of. I mean, or just even like you know, witness third party eye in the sky, like watch it happen in real time. Like, what did it smell like? Was there smoke in the air? Like, what the clouds look like? What did the other side of the camera look like? I mean, how many guys were standing there cheering and acting like goofballs? Like, I, I, have, I have no idea. Sure. Yeah, and I think that you know, for for the listener who's the uninitiated to this particular photo, it is the iconic black and white photo of uh, a number of Marines and a and a sailor who are raising a flag on what is Mount Suribachi, which is on Iwo Jima, as part of the island hopping campaign in World War II. And yeah, that's that's a great answer. I mean, I would I for all the same reasons that you mentioned. And and the other thing that people a lot of times forget about is that combat operations were still going on. There were still bullets being fired and mortar rounds flying through the air while these right, Marines right. and this sailor were raising this flag on top of the mountain to say, this is ours now. This is no longer yours, Imperial Japan. This is ours. Uh, we have taken this from you. And the symbolism behind that and what it did to, the, to galvanize the American spirit that was at that point very tired from a long war with a lot of losses and deaths and whole ships sinking out from under sailors and entire battalions of Marines and soldiers being being nearly obliterated as a part of this island hopping campaign to see that photo come home and hit the Associated Press and, and, and the wire and, and for everyone to be able to see that, it, it, it truly is a very iconic moment in, in history. And I think that's a great, an absolutely great answer. 
and, and and not just to make you know the Marine Corps proud, but like as a as a person, the historian, that moment was hugely impactful. And and like to know what it smelled like there would be just that one little tidbit of like that's that's part of history right there. Absolutely. All right, let's see. Let uh, here's a good one. So, what is something that you used to think one way about, but have since completely changed your mind? I would say working out. Actually, that's that's more recent one for me. Like, I thought that. It was always like as hard as you can, as fast as you can, as long as you can, as many reps, as much weight, you know, whether you were like lifting heavy or lifting light, but as many reps as possible, whatever workout plane we're going for, you had to like dedicate entirely to one way of going and just like full bore into it. And since then I've realized like not only is it more fun for me, I I think I get better general fitness over, you know, tossing a little bit of something else, tossing a little bit of yoga, a little bit of swimming, maybe not going so hard so fast and like taking a recovery day every now and then. That's, I'd say in the last like year and a half, probably that I've really changed my mindset on that to like, to, to, to see the benefit to not just put your head down and grind through it and like, yeah, you get bigger and stronger, but like you're just hurting your body. <laughs> yeah. The smart ass side of me wants to say that that's because you are rapidly approaching the age of 30. But then again, <laughs> uh, what do I know? Great. Uh, all right. Next one. What book, movie, TV show, article, or whatnot would you recommend to somebody to change their life? Man, I'm going to refer to my quote journal, my little index here, because I have all the, the authors and such down there. Um, let's see. Which is certainly more impressive than what I have, listener. Mine are a hodgepodge <laughs> of, I, God, I hope I can find what I'm looking for when I want to find it. Uh, Sean has gone one step beyond, so... So I think uh, an author that I, I especially key into is um, Ernest Hemingway. Um, his his self like his short stories and that kind of stuff are very very impactful. Kind of similar to the Rudyard Kipling if like makes you think about who you are as a person. Like you know what do I really want to be like when I grow up? Kind of you know thoughts and conversations. And I think movies are good one though. I got I got movies that I watch like Braveheart for example or Last of the Mohicans is another one. I can't just like casually toss around last of the Mohicans. I have to like prepare myself and set up for that cinematic adventure <laughs> and like take it all in the sound, the nature shots, all the dialogue. Like I have to prepare myself for that like journey of a movie. So yeah. I would, that, that's like a go-to for me. If I ever need some, like some me time and like refocus myself and don't have time to read a whole book, like I'll toss on last of the Mohicans and just like fade away into it. Yep. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I um I, I get the same way about the movie The Last Samurai. And I know that for, you know, some people that's um, you know, it's a Tom Cruise flick, it's it's whatever, but there's something about that final scene where there's that, you know, the 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 charge of the samurai against the newly minted machine guns and they just get mowed down. And there is just something about watching the nobility of that moment that so I, I get the the experience, the cinematic immersion, like that's a the, the Last of the Mohicans is a is a great movie, um, and it, it reminds me of, of many others. So I appreciate that. All right, last one. This one's a little bit uh, a little bit less serious. So mm. if there were a world record that you were you were to try to break, uh, what world record would it be? I don't fancy myself an athlete in particular anything, so I'm gonna probably not go athletic in this one. I, I would say if there's a world record for the most realistic drawing of the Grand Canyon, I would say that I would like that world record because I can neither draw nor draw well. I do love the Grand Canyon and like to have a 
the world record of the most, like as if you're standing right there in front of it, picture world record, that would be, that would, I'm not sure that qualifies as a world record necessarily, more like just a skill, but uh, but that, because I can not draw to save my life. <laughs> hey, it's my podcast. I make the rules. That counts as a world <laughs> record. If you can, if you can pull it off. That that's something that I would also be terrible at. I am a terrible artist. Um, I can talk. I can record things. Sometimes, it, minus all of the technical issues we had getting this whole thing started, I take full blame for that. But drawing, I am a stick figure kind of guy. So you remember the drawings on the whiteboard? Um, they're uh, you know explaining very very important and iconic events in history with stick figures and tiny little cannons was uh, was my nom de plume. Yes. So. Yeah, very, very thankful that, like, the military makes you draw little rectangles and lines. Like, I got that down pat. Like, yeah. That's right. Give me a straight line, maybe an occasional circle. I'll get an oval if I have to, but otherwise, right. uh, exactly. that's about it. <laughs> Sean, any any closing thoughts for the listeners? Anything that you'd like to say? Um, the floor is yours. Uh, well, uh, first off, thank you for very much for having me. I know that like th- this is a very meaningful moment for me. I've never been on a podcast, never I never had somebody say if they wanted to hear what I thought about something like a poem before. So that's, you know, humbling in its own way. Um, so, so thank you very much for that opportunity. I hope this episode doesn't get like five views or something and tanks your podcast. <laughs> I guess to, to the listeners out there, um, I, I once thought like reading stuff like poetry and, and being interested in quotes was kind of like a weird thing that, you know, wasn't, wasn't going to be, something that I would draw on in the future as a, as a man, as a Marine, like all those you know grandiose terms, but they've been something that I've really used the older that I've gotten. Like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to 30 than I am 20 now. And uh, I often look to my quote journal where I find a piece of inspirational prose that like stirs something inside me much, much, much deeper than like a YouTube video or a speech given by, a, you know, some guy at a college graduation or something like that. There's just, something a little more impactful for stuff like this. So if, if you you know you have the inclination, don't be afraid to, to follow that. Cause uh, I was a little bit at first and I wasn't as outspoken as I was or am now about like, yeah, you should read some poetry cause it's good for you. But I probably should have done that earlier cause I could have you know, gotten some more people to buy into the fact that like reading poetry as a Marine officer is not lame and that, you know, could go to figure. <laughs> and, and Sean, I appreciate your time this evening. I know, um, uh... You know, there's there's always a ton going on in our life, and I appreciate you taking a moment to pause and talk about this. And I I appreciate your insights into the poem. You certainly taught me something, and I, I'm certain that you you taught the listeners something as well. So, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. I, I really do mean that. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app, or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod. Or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks, as always, for listening.